0: Okay, there's one other thing I wanted to talk to you about. Just looking through your catalog. I mean, I already kind of knew it, but I refreshed myself in it. And there seemed to be this one moment of shift.
1: For me, there are many moments, but which moment are you referring well, to? Well,
0: you know, the, the, there's one where it became almost like this very thick, liggity, like you know, texture of early stuff that uh, I saw. And it used to show me in lessons. And then the, the stuff that's happening more like it's happening now for however you want to categorize that, yeah. you know. And I'm wondering when that happened. Well, and there was why yeah. that happened. Okay,
1: there's a shift that definitely occurred. It's the first shift of a number of shifts, Dan. It's not the it, you don't know the newer music, so it's probably not so easy for you to judge. But that the one you are referring to, when I was still uh, in the kind of the student days, the pieces I was writing in my middle twenties just about till I was 30. And I knew myself to be a composer whose stylistic development needed some maturing to really find its muscular strength, and I knew I'd be a little late getting there. So up to about 1976, seven, and then it, it, just dribbling on into early 1980, I was writing pieces that still use this kind of cluster micropolyphonic uh, universe that was a, an important part of it. So, a piece like Bees Garments for eight cellos, a piece like Vier Vaben for string orchestra, conspiracies for flutes. And going up to and then sort of shifting a little bit in my second string quartet called Bucephalus, I felt at some point there that the harmonic control was not sufficient for me in that environment. I had a cluster and I had a texture. But I had lost a little bit of the knob that I love to manipulate that had to do with harmony. But I wasn't content to, uh, I was not interested in returning to a neo-romantic functional harmony. And I, But I wanted to know, how could, I, how could I deal with this in another way? And there are two things that were influencing me at the time, I don't mind saying. One was, I was listening to these pieces of Michael Gordon's, who had stripped music down to a, such a, raw basic level that you didn't even though you might have had a cluster that things some of the things were so clear this was in the 70s early 80s okay
0: so we're at the early 80s at this point
1: yeah i mean the 70s michael michael was first kind of real michael piece he wrote not on that piano but one very much like it in this studio called thou shalt thou shalt not that's about 1980 81 and i was kind of interested in what he what he was up to uh, that was one thing. And the other thing was that in 1982, I visited Ligeti in Hamburg. I went for a visit and I sat and I spent some time with him. And he was just working on the piano, the horn trio. And I was startled to see what he was doing. He, had, he, he already had given me copies of Hungarian rock and Pasakaya Ungarese, which I also thought were very interesting. And he had talked to me, I mean, just because I think it's interesting to know this, he had talked to me about thinking about harmony in a different way when he was working on this piece, San Francisco Polyphony, which is not as well known as some of his other music. The ideas for which came to him mostly when he was my teacher in California, but he didn't actually finish it for a couple of years. And I must say it stimulated my own thinking about harmony. So I revised some things and I began to work on principles of palindromes and symmetry in harmony, which could pro- provide, a, for me, a formal control that permitted any kind of sound, consonant, dissonant, or otherwise, in a structural system that made sense to me and allowed me to control harmony. So that beginning with the, my piano trio in 1988, I think the music changes is a very important change. And then throughout the, the next 12 years, Including all the opere della musica povera pieces, they are all palindromic and symmetrical structures, all every single one of them, third quartet and all those pieces, and many other things beside. That lasted until maybe five years ago, six years ago, that kind of has come to an end.
0: What's it now?: Well, I, that's how I, I know you. Yeah. Yeah yeah, 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 yeah. well
1: I mean, if you go and listen to the if you listen to the Caprichos andfaticos, for example, which is recorded by uh, Cantaloupe Records with uh, So percussion and Lisa Moore's solo piano, you will hear something else. I don't want to kind of give it away, but there, there are other paradigms here. It's- there are other par- paradigms at work. Is this a c- This is the
0: secret recipe if you can't know it?
1: No, it has to do, it is kind of an acceptance of the, I would say it's a more um, generous understanding of the interaction between formalistic concerns and content. It's a more generous one. So it doesn't... By generous,
0: do you mean lenient?
1: Uh, I mean generous in the sense that not lenient, no. It's still pretty strict in its own language, but it uses a number of technical features, not just one. I mean, if you look at the music of the opere and the music of my double marimba concerto, for example, or even uh, my 20th century, that piece, uh, which is for speaking sextet and so on, those pieces are so strictly organized in their sense of the palindrome and symmetry that it's kind of hair-raising, actually. I've I've startled myself that I submitted myself to that kind of uh, rigor. But after that, I began to feel like, I I think I know what I'm doing now, and I can achieve a kind of formal precision without being quite so draconian about it. And so that's changed. What made you make that shift you know, I think this is, a, this is a little bit a question of uh, the time of one's life. I mean, I don't have that much more. I'm 66. I, there's things I want to do.
0: Would mean things you want to do outside of composing or no, things you want things to do I within want to do composing? In music that, yeah.
1: that if I were to spend an excessive amount of time uh, bothering myself about f- formal matters purely, I would never get around to it and I think there are other things that I want to do that that don't re that will still be well smart pieces but they won't have to be as exigent as these other pieces were I mean you know if you you know you can go on my website now and you'll see which is kind of amusing to me and a touching a little bit that there are now I think there are something like three different dissertations written about my music and almost all of them focus on those pieces that are the most extreme in that formalistic sense.
0: Well, I mean, of course it's going to be because that's the best
1: thing to write a paper on. That's what the theory people like to do. Yeah. 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 And, you know, I feel like I've done that. I've been down that road. Now I, I'm going on a different road. And, you know, if you write an opera, there's no reason in the world... To make sure that everything in it is symmetric and uh, th- these kinds of extreme formalistic things. I mean, I know Berg does it in Futzek, but Lulu doesn't have it, for example. And I think Berg probably learned a bitter lesson. It Took him so long to write that thing, and how many people really care that this movement is a variation on a rhythm and that one's a variation on a tone and this one's a fugue? On this? I mean,
0: that was the question I had in my mind. Like, okay, so how many people really care? Like, did you? Is that something you said to yourself? before you went on to this next step, I'm not, I'm not doing it so someone can write a dissertation for me. Well, I'm, I thought of it... I'm a, doing it because, yeah, yeah. like, I loved uh, Seeger when I, when I was eight. And it, <laughs> no, it's just one, I found, one doesn't equate with the other.
1: Well, I found that, you know, part of what I was doing before was trying to be, you know, incredibly ingenious about these kind of uh, structures and bringing them to bear on very dramatic materials that... Uh, more or less don't matter. I mean, in the music of Povera pieces they're very dramatic and colorful pieces, and the fact that they're all uh, symmetries and, and of this sort uh, doesn't really. I mean, you know, they didn't have to be to do what they did. Maybe they did. I don't know. I mean, I'm not the best person to judge this anymore. And this, you know, the composer after all suffers from the authorial fallacy. You know, he, the composer, he or she thinks that they're doing something, and they're convinced that they're doing it, but. And as time goes by, it becomes evident that they only understood a part of what they thought they were doing. Still, that being said, if you're going to write music for a movie, if you're going to write music for a theatrical presentation, there's other places to be smart in that music and ways of being smart other than the uh, you know the ways that I was in the musica povera period, which which ran from roughly 1988-87 until. 2005 or 6. I mean, it's kind of kind of amazing to me that I subjected even a piece like Pine Eyes, which is like a, a radio play based on Pinocchio. It's over an hour and runtime. Run time. And, and virtually everything in it is a kind of a symmetry or that kind of structural thing.
0: So now that you've let go of the importance of Structural integrity. I don't mean that in that sense. I'm sorry. I don't mean it. I don't, mean, I don't mean it I, in that sense.
1: I, I'm trying to get. But, well, let me just make what, it clear. Yeah. There's still formal issues at stake, but the formal issues have to be drawn from the from the material itself rather than imposed on the material from without. So there's. A, it's a slightly. It would be as if everything that I wrote. I mean, let's take the most. Brute example of that. If I told you that everything I wrote from 1988 until 2005 or 6 was a sonata form, which it's not, of course, but if I told you that was true, and now I don't write everything in sonata form, I do rondos, I do variations, I do all sorts of other things, you wouldn't say that I'd lost the rigor. You would just observe that he isn't so fixated on a single version of that thing. That's made a big difference to me. (laughs)
2: Thank <laughs> you.
0: okay, so take me through the mental process that you have now. I'm wondering what that mental process of you finding something, finding a structure in it, and then figuring it out and then building a piece from that is like, how does it it start literally to the point of, hey, I got this idea now, and now I'm going to go with it in this direction?
1: Well, you know, I, I don't know if I can generalize, but let me give you some examples which are by no means exhaustive okay? They're not exhausted. I'll have a new disc that will be coming out, which will include a number of works that have different, very different strategies. All of them are rigorous, but they don't, they're not the same. And when you ask, like, where does it come, how does it start? Well, I have a piece uh, called Going Home, which is an oboe quartet, uh, because the oboe is my first instrument, and I was commissioned to do this piece. I was very glad to accept the commission. I love playing the oboe when I was younger. And it's for oboe, violin, viola, and cello, like the Mozart oboe quartet. But the title Going Home also has a reference to the great English horn solo in the Dvorak New World Symphony, which became a hymn called Going Home, which is always played by the double reed English horn and oboe eventually too. So I thought when I started writing it, I was going to write this kind of, you know, nostalgic referential thing of that sort. But I found that as I was writing it, I was thinking, wow, I actually am thinking about going home to the place where my mom was born and where all my people came from uh, in Russia, where I had been myself, and all the complexities of feeling that that implied. In the end, the formal device in going home, and you know, I'm telling you this privately, so don't tell anyone else, oh, yeah. is like the Italian caccia, it's like a chase, in which at very great distances, a cannon is initiated. Multiple cannons are initiated, and it, that seemed to me appropriate for what this piece was about, which was about one thing following another, or searching for another. You know, a cacha is a hunt or a chase, of course, and uh, there is that feeling in the, in this piece too. So that had, that's one thing. Another piece of mine that from the same group of pieces was another commission which had to use a Native American subject, an Italian. Pianist Emanuele Arciulli got this commission to, for me to do this. He liked my piano writing. He wanted me to do this, and it's actually commissioned by the Aeroporti di Puglia. Can you imagine why the airports of Puglia have somehow want this Native American piece? But whatever. So I found this little tune by Ishi, the last uh, Native American Californian guy who probably lived as a free Indian, and he was recorded singing a little song. So I listened to his little song that was on. You can listen to it in the University of California archive. And when I listened to it, I noticed certain structural features about it, and I adapted those features to make a nine-minute piece based on his little song, which only lasts a bar, but now you have a nine-minute piece. So it's an anhematonic pentatonic, that is to say, it only uses pentatonic modes that are anhematonic that do not have half steps in them. And I, also, I continually use his tune over and over. It never stops. His tune is heard continuously throughout the piece, but it's surrounded by different modal and hematonic modes in the same kind of spirit of asymmetric formation that his little song is done in.
0: Okay, so I think I was un- not understanding it well then because my notion was that you'd loosen up the rules of a piece, no. but now it's, okay, let me take this thing, find the rules within it, structure a piece,
1: that's a better okay. way. Okay. All right. Or, you know, if I think something is is capable of that, a third example uh, in that in that world is a piece called Prayers Remain Forever, which I wrote for two two cents Lisa Moore and Ashley Bathgate ch- cello piano piece. And that piece is supposed to be like a prayer uh, that's remaining and doesn't go away. So that piece goes along in, in such a way that there's always or at least almost always a note that's then followed by another note that's a half step higher than it at a very specific place in the meter in every single bar of that piece. You know, so what can I say? There's a a lot of different forms going on there.
0: Does that make your music more variable now? Now it's maybe a little bit less whatever kind of grand structural scheme you're coming up with, which always starts with you, Now it's always starting with something from an outside source. So that's going to make a dramatic change on the difference of the piece from piece to piece.
1: Yeah, no, I wouldn't even put it that way. Let's imagine it a slightly different, from a different perspective. If you think about insects in the world, insects in the world have their bones on the outside and their flesh on the inside. Uh, Human beings have their flesh on the outside and their bones on the inside. The creatures that I made that were so strictly made in the from 88 to 2005, 2006, they were like insect-like in the sense that their formal elements were very much on the outside of the pieces, even when they're camouflaged by very dramatic things that happen. The pieces I've written since then, the bone structures are on the inside, and there's a lot more more evident flesh on the outside. But they all have bones. It's just some bones on the inside, some bones are on the outside would you ever get rid of the bones completely? Given me, I mean, that's part of who I am. I think it's very unlikely. I mean, in thinking about this, I think of why it is that artists learn to draw, and they draw the figure. Why do they do that, and why do they study anatomy? I think they do it because they understand what it takes for a human being or some creature to stand and walk in a world of gravity. And in order to be able to render such a thing, they have to understand that. And for me, music has something of that character. I have to understand how these critters will live in the world. And if, in order for them to live in the world, for me, they have to have bones and blood and muscle and nerve endings. And I got to build everything into them.
0: But you've been you've been teaching for a long time. What happens when a student comes to you with something with no bones inside or outside? It has happened. Saying, yeah, yeah. I mean, sure. It happens. It, it happens a lot. Yeah,
1: yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I've tried, and I think you know you can decide for yourself to what degree I've succeeded in being able to offer interesting suggestions to students whose techniques are very different than my own. I mean, i It's you know, it's. I, I, I actually, if you think about it. There have been remarkably few students who have come out of my studio who actually sound very much like me and very much like my music. So that means, that implies to me that I've been obliged to respond to many, many different kinds of creative approaches to things. And I I, I think that's fine.
0: But you've never been convinced by a boneless
1: creature so much that you're like, you know what, let me try try
0: and rip these bones out, see what happens.
1: Well, I look... um, you know, I've always been astonished, say, and I've, I have don't know if I said this to you, but I've said this to other students who will recognize what I'm about to say, that if you look at Mozart uh, or you look at Stravinsky, you're, you're in the presence of composers who had an endless imaginative sense. They never seem to run out of ideas. So in, in a Mozart sonata, for example, the development sections aren't really the interesting parts most of the time. It's this endless flow of, of melody and counterpoint that is being generated in, uh, by a, a dramatic need. And that's why, in some ways, for example, you get in the, in, in a composer like Mozart, I think, his, his most touching and beautiful work in the opera, where he's not usually terribly constrained to think about development and that kind of thing. He's just constantly thinking up new, wonderful things. Stravinsky, very much the same. The formal nature of a piece like the Rite of Spring is kind of not that interesting. It's really a dance with wonderful, imaginative things flowing after one another. Um, but I say to the students, you know, don't try this at home unless you're Stravinsky or Mozart, because it's really hard to do that. You have to be gifted in a very special way to be able to do that. And not everybody's gifted in that way. So when you ask, to do, have I met some sort of blobby composer who that has no bones that I've really like the answer is yes but it's rare it's not not it's not doesn't exist but I consider that to be a remarkable gift if somebody can can do persuasive work without but, the bones
0: and something you're not convinced you can do then if you're not it's if, not me you're not trying no
1: it's not me I'm not that person uh that's not what I can do that's not well maybe I could do it you know after all I, I have written film music, which doesn't require formal.
0: that's uh, That's where I was going to go with yeah, it. Yeah, it yeah, doesn't yeah, really. It,
1: uh, I could do it, but leave, left to my own devices, I'm always going to try to put some sort of bony thing under it or around it or some carapace of some kind to contain it. It's just, it's, it's a kind of a, you know, I've always felt about my style that it would be better understood retrospectively than prospectively. That is to say, like, you know, when I'm gone, you know, somebody will look back and say, yeah, there is a kind of coherence about what, what Bresnik was trying to do. But if you stop me right now and you look at it, and it looks kind of heterogeneous and, you know, you don't know what I'm going to do next. And that's just me. That's, that's me. But that characteristic that we've just described, the need to put that little bony thing in, I think is a stylistic continuity across my very first pieces until my most recent pieces and
0: in, in a certain way it is a just because it's something that can be taught absolutely doesn't mean that it's not a raw talent to have a, have a brain that works that way in the first place. Right?
1: Yeah. Well, I remember. <laughs> yeah. I mean, not everybody's built this way either. I mean, I remember having a conversation with my old colleague, Jacob Druckman, who after I, I played a recording of, uh, this orchestra piece of mine called Pontusic, which is another one of these, uh, uh, you know, parametrically sy- symmetrical things. And, and, and uh, you know, he was fascinated by the piece, but he said to me, I don't know how you think of such a thing, how you would ever go about writing such a piece. I mean, he said, I could never do that. I would never even, I mean, I wouldn't get more than a few bars into such a thing without kind of having to turn back and just throw it away. And I thought to myself,
0: that's how I feel about you <laughs> and the music you write. Well,
1: he is yeah. a he's a more uh, Mozartian, uh, Stravinskyian guy. No, from...
0: I don't mean like I didn't mean that in the sense of you and me. I'm saying that's probably Jacob. what you thought in your head. That's how I feel about you, Jacob. About Jacob, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah and I'm yeah, saying,
1: yeah. and in a way, but the, 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 there was no critique of Jacob in that way. It was like saying, "Yes, I know your music is mostly invented." Shot from the hip, almost an improvisation as it goes along, with a very, very slender single melody line that runs through the thing, which is not a, a big structural constraint. And I must say, I, you know, he was very gifted in that way. But I can't do that. Not I mean, indeed, why we don't need to? It, we don't need to duplicate each other in this way. It, it would be nice. It's nice that people do the thing differently. The, the thing is, is that
0: I would. I, For me personally, I was so obsessed with that type of structural integrity that you were, you were talking about when I was here. And I started looking at other colleagues who kind of did that shot from the hip thing. And it almost made me aware that there was this, somehow there was this blind spot in what I was doing that I was not aware of. And because of that, I was like, okay, I had to, I have to give up what I'm really good at and love doing just to see if there's something else there. That I could grasp onto and at least then I would know what my blind spot is and then I could make a decision. I could be like, I hate that I'm going back to this or I could say I can never do that again. And for me, there was like a there was like a little bit of a compromise where I'm definitely more lenient in the way I put something together structurally for the sake of something that just shot out at the hip. And that, that means that it can't be, you can't write a dissertation about it anymore. But I like again. Who cares? Like I'd rather,
1: yeah. Well, and, and you know, Ligeti, do you ever feel that, do you ever feel yeah. Like well, Liggetty, this blind Ligeti, spot because of this thing you have to do. You know, Liggetty found this in me right away. I mean, I've told this story many, many times. But Liggetty, I once came into a lesson and I put up a thing and I. He said, Liggetty, said, well, why did you write this note? And I said, Well, you know, it was kind of the inversion of this and the, you know, the retrograde of that, and it's supposed to be fulfilling the contour of that. And I had about a million formal explanations for why that note should be there. And he was like, no. He said, Martin, Marty, from now on, you are not permitted to write an ugly bar, he said to me. And what he was trying to say was, not that there was some absolute standard of beauty, but that I could never justify the presence of a of an event, a sonic event, on the basis that it fulfilled some formal property without also simultaneously fulfilling some sonic property. And that has been the great challenge of my my career and my life. And, and that's one I continue to, to find the most exhilarating and interesting is to, to make these formal ingenuities pay off, but also to realize the sonic pictures that matter. Now, it's not quite the same as what you're saying about shooting from the hip aspect, but I have to have a clear sonic picture. Those, the sonic picture, the formal picture is like having binocular vision. If these two things come into focus, then I know I've done it right. If one dominates the other, then I know I've not done it right. And that's that's the goal for me. Really that is I mean, if there was a credo that I have, that's it. That these two elements and they're much more complicated than simple that simple binary to be sure, but those two elements have to work together cooperatively. Well, I think that's a good place to end it. Thank you for doing this. It's my pleasure, Dan.